Ready? Good. So, welcome back to everyone, and welcome to those who are maybe joining us for the first time, either here or um, online. We've been looking at the ways in which the gospel show us Jesus entering into the work of silence and solitude and how he wo wove that work into his, into his life. And in the same way that we may come on retreat, come away to a lonely place like Bear Island, well, not so lonely, but a little bit withdrawn, uh, or we uh, work our two meditation sessions into our daily lives. So there are different ways in which we do this work, but the essential need for silence and solitude for this contemplative dimension of life is the same. So this morning, I thought we could look at this little passage from the Gospel of Luke. Where Jesus is shown uh, doing his, almost his daily work. Uh, he was known his reputation uh, grew as a healer. So if you set yourself up as a healer, other people are going to come to you because healers, whether it's physical or psychological, are um, much in demand. He was once in a certain town where there happened to be a man covered with leprosy. Seeing Jesus, he bowed to the ground and begged his help. Sir, he said, if only you will, you can cleanse me. Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him. Unusual to touch, for his, in his time, to touch a leper. He touched him and said, indeed I will, I, I do want to do this, be clean again. The leprosy left him immediately. Jesus then ordered him not to tell anybody. He didn't want to develop to a, a reputation or to be seen only as a miracle worker. But go, he said, show yourself to the priest and make the offering laid down by Moses for your cleansing and that will certify the cure. So, so having leprosy meant he was this man was um, excluded from the village or from common life. So he was outcast. So the first part of the story you could say is the cure. He cures the leprosy. But in the second uh, section where he tells the man to go and fill out the forms and get himself approved again by the uh, a priest, uh, he's healing, he's, he's continuing the cure so that the person can be reintegrated into society, into community, and to pick up his life again. The purpose of the cure uh, is to allow the sick person to live again uh, as fully as possible. In the National Health Service in the United Kingdom at the moment, there's a big crisis. 
And the crisis seems to be uh, not only the numbers of people and the, un and the lack of resources, the underfunding, but uh, too many people coming to the hospital, and elderly people especially now, who um, get looked after in the hospital, but then there's no care for them at home. Uh, the, the, the whole caring uh, work, the home care, that needs to be done to help them settle back in and convalesce and give them what they need, that is, uh, that's being uh, underfunded despite a huge amount of wealth being created in other parts of society, there's not enough money to look after poor old people at home and health and care workers are, um, are having, having to leave the profession um, in large numbers. So the, the curing in the hospital is only one part of it. The other is helping the person to, to settle back into their life and... and um, be healed, be made whole again. And we're not whole until we find our place in our community. So, Jesus is concerned uh, as part of the, the healing work that the man should be reintegrated into society. But the talk about him spread all the more. So, as it was, people didn't keep quiet as he asked them to do, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be cured of their ailments. And from time to time, he would withdraw to solitary places to pray. So again, we're reminded, and as we are several times, especially in the Gospel of Luke, that this was just part of his routine. It wasn't, this wasn't only due to an exceptional crisis like the death of John the Baptist or other, other examples we've looked at, but it was just part of his working life that he took time to, to, um, to go away and pray in a quiet and solitary and silent place. I, some years ago, I got a, a, a letter from a nurse who was working in a refugee camp and she was on her own pretty much in this little clinic that she was running and um, she uh, was writing to me she said we've been having shells have been dropping in parts of the camp today they were under attack by somebody and um, so she said it's been a long day uh, got up at six and opened my door and there's been a line there all day and um, I've just closed the door and I'm going to meditate. The people were still lining up and you know it's hard for her as a nurse, as a healer, as a carer to close the door on people. You know, where do you draw the line? Everyone's going to say, just, just me, just, just, just let me in. And uh, so but she closed the door and was going to have something to eat and meditate. So she knew, as Jesus knew, as we all know, that if we don't take, take this time, not only for physical rest and to, 
can look after ourselves uh, psychologically and physically, but also spiritually, then our work and our suffers. And however well-intentioned we are, however generous we may be, um, everyone has a limit. Everybody will burn out. And burnout doesn't only mean that you end up rolling around on the, on the floor or sitting in a corner uh, crying. It can also mean that you, to all in, intents and purposes, you're carrying on fairly normally, externally, but interiorly, you're beginning to shut down and you're, deta you're detaching yourself in a negative sense from the people and the work around you. It's an in in interior withdrawal, but a negative withdrawal. And so your, the, the quality of your relationship, the quality of your work, the quality of how you interact with people <coughs> begins to, um, to decline. Jesus, on uh, another occasion, when the woman with the hemorrhage touched him, felt power go out of him. Felt energy go out of him. It takes it out of you to heal. It was a work he felt, you know, he had the, the compassion in him was, was, was just uh, involuntary. It wasn't a choice he made so much. Like the the Good Samaritan, he didn't think about whether he should pick up the, the wounded man, he just did it because he saw the need and he responded intuitively like the policeman who jumped over the side of a bridge when he saw a woman who was trying to commit suicide, had jumped into the water and he just jumped out of his car and jumped over the bridge uh, to rescue her, which he did. When he was asked later, that was very brave of you to do that, you're very courageous, you're a great hero. And he said, well, actually, I, I never thought of it. <laughs> I never thought about it. I just did it. It just seemed to be the immediate natural thing to do. So nevertheless, although it has compassion flows naturally, if, if our hearts are open and we have any measure of health in ourselves, nevertheless, it takes it out of you. Any kind of work takes it out of you. And so it needs to be, uh, humanly speaking, needs to be renewed, to be re-energized, to be recharged. To give to others requires, if it's to be sustainable, it requires that we love ourselves, that we give ourselves and our own human needs the right kind of attention and the right kind of, um, of time. And the, it's interesting how we see in the, in, in the monastic uh, literature uh, how, how psychologically aware they were of this, of this need for balance. They saw two, two, um, two dangers or what, what in the in life, in our attitude to our work. Uh, one was laziness, 
just being too lazy and giving up before you get started and uh, just, just not, not even trying, sort of passive giving up on the one hand and on the other hand overdoing it, being too zealous and trying to give too much without a break. Um, I met a, a prisoner once who was a bit of an example of that. He was used to come to the meditation group in the prison, but some of the others said to me they thought he was, he was not very well psychologically because he was going to absolutely everything that was on offer uh, in the courses or things being done in the prison and uh, throwing himself into them all with, without any sort of measure or prudence and overdoing, overdoing all these spiritual uh, things or yoga and everything else. And basically he was, he was trying to escape, trying to escape from the prison rather than to accept the fact that he was in prison. He wanted to create this, this other world uh, which would, into which he could mentally, psychologically escape. And uh, sadly, he had a, he had a breakdown um, uh, and had to take it away to a psychiatric unit. So on the one hand, you know, we, we don't even try because we think we won't be able to do it or we just don't have the energy. Uh, on the or on the other hand, we overdo it and we, we try too hard. It's the same with the mantra. When you say the mantra, uh, for, for some people it might seem uh, you know, too much work. You know, I, I don't like to say the mantra because I just like to sit there in the presence of God, which, which well, that might be right for them. I'm not, I can't, one can't judge other people. But uh, it might also mean that uh, you're basically just sitting there in what Cassian, John Cassian called the, the sopor letalis, the lethal sleep. So kind of a holy drowsy, drowsiness. Uh, the Buddhists uh, just describe this as, I think, I forget what the, the phrase is, but it's basically where the, 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 the mental, your mental state is just drowsy. You're half awake, half asleep, and it's pleasant enough, but uh, you're not actually doing any work. You're just sort of drifting on a river on a warm afternoon and uh, uh, taking a little snack every so often. So, uh, you know, that's one approach to meditation uh, that w we don't think it should be work, we don't want it to be work, we see it just as a time of relaxation and immediate relaxation, not, not peace. Peace is a little different from relax, relaxed. If you say I'm feeling very relaxed, it's not quite the same as when you say I'm feeling at peace. And peace is usually something that you have had to work at. Peace is the result of some resolution of conflict rather than just chilling out. So, 
that's one uh, extreme. The other extreme would be that you you are going to batter at the doors of heaven and go for enlightenment uh, if it kills you, and uh, you, you see it uh, only in terms of your own effort, and it's going to be your achievement. So you sit there using the mantra as if it were a jackhammer, trying to get through concrete. So either extreme really fails, and we have to learn from the mistakes we make in order to get to the right balance. And part of that learning is, is, um, is learning with and from other people. So uh, health is, in most cultures, seen as a balance, a balance of the different forces or elements or chemistries of the body and the mind. Uh, health is not a idealistic state, it's a, it's a dynamic balance which is always needing to be rebalanced to some degree. And spiritually speaking, the balance is between grace and effort, between the work that is done in us by the Spirit and the work we have to do to allow this work to be done. St. Teresa says, um, all we can do at the time of prayer is to be ready, is to dispose ourselves. But to be ready involves um, some work on our part. So a healthy life, uh, a healthy spiritual life, is a, is, a, is a prerequisite of a healthy social, psychological life, personal life. Um, we can't be healthy in one part of our life without being uh, unhealthy in others. Oh, sorry, we can't, be we can't be unhealthy in one part of our life without being unhealthy in others. Um, the balance is a balance of integrated forces. We can't separate the body, the mind, and the spirit. They are distinct, so they have different needs, but we can't just separate them. So we need to find a balance between contemplation and action if we are to be healthy living, uh, help, uh, to have a healthy way of living. Lifestyle issues today are very important for people and often related to general ideas of spirituality. So if you open the Saturday newspapers, uh, you'll nearly always see a, a lifestyle section which addresses this concern that many people have in our society about finding the right way of living or finding, you know, whether it's diet or whether it's exercise or whether it's how much time you spend working and so on. Uh, looking at all of these techniques or uh, pieces of advice or methodologies to make your life better. Much of it is just abstract because you read 
you know, about living a balanced and healthy life, but then you close the newspaper and go back to your unhealthy uh, eating or unhealthy food, uh, unhealthy lifestyle. So, what is usually lacking in these lifestyle um, spiritualities is a truly spiritual dimension, by which we mean a spiritual dimension is that dimension of us where we can work, but where we are not attached to the fruits of our labors, as we were saying yesterday, where we work, but we're not measuring the results, where we're practicing something as a discipline rather than just as a technique. St. Benedict uh, and the writing in the generation or two after the Desert Fathers peaked uh, formulates this as, a, as a, a balance of life that has come down the ages and is still helping many people in all walks of life and as well as teams of people and workforces to, uh, to understand how life can be lived healthily, satisfactorily, by integrating these three dimensions of physical, mental, and spiritual. So he divides the day into different activities. Um, and they are the time given to manual work. For him, mostly, it was manual work, but not always manual work. Um, and the time given to reading, which he insisted was an important part of the life, even for the monks who didn't want to, to read. He said, you've got to uh, keep your minds uh, open and alert. For him, it was primarily, of course, spiritual reading. Uh, and prayer, both prayer in common which is where he places most of his emphasis in organizing the schedule, but also clearly aware of the importance of personal prayer, of the prayer of the heart. And remember, he sees the monastic life in, the, in this form, formula as a preparation for, for deeper uh, solitude, whether that solitude is physical or interior. So it's a little rule for beginners. This is very basic, getting your life together. Thomas Merton said that um, when novices came to his monastery, this was back in the 50s, 60s, um, he said, you know, there wasn't not much point in talking to them about the spiritual life and about, you know, introducing them to the... Uh, great contemplative texts, he said, as long as they're addicted to television. And he said most of them who come, this was in the 50s, now it would be uh, internet, of course, but uh, he said they're, they're still in withdrawal from, from that culture. So, um, uh, so it's a, there's, a, there's a, a, a preparation necessary even before we start to get our life together before we start to, we have to identify the excesses, the addictions, the, uh, the, pr the 
problematical patterns in our life, have to identify them and say, that's, well, I've got to sort that out. And you know, there's no point in, in pretending that I'm going to be able to meditate twice a day or do some reading every day if uh, you know, I'm spending five hours uh, on Facebook. So, uh, so it's a in, in, in a way, it comes down to time management, and that's often how Benedict is appreciated by, by people in business or in, uh, in the secular world. So these are the three elements. Uh, and, and when we're on retreat, as we are here this week, we're able um, to look at those elements a little more clearly and to see how we're using our time. The time we spend in meditation and in other ways of prayer. The time we spend when maybe we're not... I mean, one good manual work you could do uh, is uh, when you're out walking and you see this is supposed to be the tidiest island in Ireland, but it's not perfectly tidy. So uh, if you see something on the ground, Incredible. What did I see yesterday? Anyway, there was a can, a Coke can. Hmm? A what? It was a can. A can, yeah, okay. So, I, you know, pick it up, pick it up, put it in your bag, and um, throw it over somebody else's garden. No. <laughs> uh, pick it up and, uh, and take it back and put it in the garbage. I mean, there's, it's a good little fit social work for the common good, uh, or just w w walking uh, is, a kind of, is a kind of a manual work as well. Uh, or, you know, the work you're doing, if, if you're doing the washing up or the, the cleaning in your house or wherever you're staying. So, in some way, see that, that your physical, your, the physical part of your being here, whether it's working or walking, uh, you know, can be done in a prayerful way. And, uh, and similarly, the time spent in, in, in reading. And just to be able to focus on that a little more consciously in a time of retreat uh, is beneficial to us because when we go back to ordinary schedules, ordinary life, we'll be that much more aware of the need for this balance and of any, any areas of imbalance or excess or compulsiveness. There's an important uh, dis difference between Buddhist and Benedictine uh, Christian monasticism and over the question of work, of manual work. In the Buddhist uh, monastic life, uh, the monks are not supposed to work at all. Uh, and it's the lay people who are meant to look after them. So traditionally the monks go out with their begging bowl every morning in the village and the people put in food and the people are happy to do it because they feel this is, brings them benefit, merit. To feed the monks is a, is a good thing to do for them and their children. So in that kind of society, there's this collaboration, and the monks, of course, um, do, do their thing for others as well, particularly helping the dying 
and uh, education and other kinds of social work very often. So, um, and don't do it for profit. So it's a kind of ideal uh, society, so social balance, which of course doesn't work so well in a big city. But, uh, but the, monk, uh, the monks themselves are not supposed to work, whereas for Benedict, they are supposed to work. And uh, they're supposed to support themselves, whatever that, by whatever means, the appropriate means, probably not by arms trading or drug dealing, but by um, you know, maybe uh, running a farm or running a school or a parish even, or uh, teaching or uh, running a retreat center or teaching meditation. These are you know, good ways and acceptable ways of supporting yourself as, in the, as a monastic or contemplative community. And because uh, in, the, uh, in the Christian monastic world, work was regarded as necessary, the, there was also the same danger of overwork. So there's this interesting little story from Cassian from the Desert Fathers to show that even monks can overdo it. Um, this is from the Ninth Conference. One of the um, elders, one of the older monks, happened to pass by the cell of a certain brother who was suffering under the under this sickness of mind that we have uh, spoken about, and it's the sickness of imbalance. He's, he sees this as a mental illness, actually. This man, the certain brother, was restlessly constructing and repairing unnecessary things <laughs> <laughs> and exerting himself in mundane distractions. Right? So he was just breathlessly running around fixing things and then deconstructing them and then reconstructing them. And From a distance, he noticed that this monk was pounding a very hard rock with a sledgehammer. And he saw a certain Ethiopian uh, standing by him and striking hammer blows along with him. Their hands joined together. So the monk was hitting this stone with the help of this, this, this other figure. And he was urging him on, this Ethiopian was urging him on in this work with fiery brand. So I mean, really urging him to work harder, harder. Hit. He stayed there for quite a while, astonished at the sight of this cruel demon. So the Ethiopian is, is the demon of overwork and at the deceptive power of such an illusion. So this monk was under an illusion that he was doing good work, meaningful work, and he was just uselessly hammering and pounding a rock. I was, I was struck by this when talking to one of the MBA students who was on the meditation and leadership course recently, and um, he highly disciplined uh, person and had was meditating twice a day for the whole of the six weeks actually 
Uh, and he said, this has been a great, great discovery for me. It's going to be really useful, especially when I go to New York after I finish my MBA, and I'll be working 13 hours a day. That's how, at, in the office they would. He said, that's, and, and more if necessary. So, of course, he was quite excited by that, because he's probably going to be paid quite well for it. But, uh, so, uh, hopefully the meditation will at least keep him in some balance. So the other monk, the older monk, was astonished at the sight of this cruel demon and at the deceptive power of such an illusion. For when the brother was completely worn out and wanted to rest and put an end to his work, he was encouraged at this demon's instigation and who forced him to take up his hammer again and uh, keep, keep bashing away at this uh, boulder. Um, so that he was, uh, he didn't see, it, it, well he says, he did not feel how burdensome all his effort was. So he didn't even realize the damage it was doing to him. So he wouldn't realize that he was burning himself out, he was destroying himself until he, at some point he would crack. At last the old man, greatly upset by the demon's cruel mockery, so he's looking, this, this is the psychological equivalent to this, you're living with someone or you know someone who's overdoing it and they can't see it and they don't know how much damage they're doing to themselves and probably to their family or whatever, to their quality of work or whatever it may be. Uh, they can't see it. They're under this illusion that they are, you know, doing great work. So the old man, greatly upset by this, goes up to the brother's cell, greets him and says, what are you working at, brother? And he said, we are toiling away at this very hard rock and we've hardly been able to break it up at all. To this the old man said, so it's good that you said we, because you were not alone when you were striking it that there was another with you whom you did not see. So he didn't, wasn't able to see this compulsion in himself. He stood by you during this work, not so much to help you as to press you on with all his force. Um, so this was, this was the, the younger monk's liberation from overwork. So, uh, the, what we see here is the importance of other people in our life. People who can see if and when we're going in the wrong direction and who can pull us back. Sometimes just by being with them and uh, this is enough to, to remind us but sometimes you need an intervention. Sometimes they need to sit you down or talk with you about it. Um, so the relationships of the, of the monks in the desert, and we can see even in the life, in those examples of Jesus, uh, in his life, a busy life with other people, life full of relationships, full of working at 
this group of 12 apostles that he had selected. Uh, so his, his time in solitude and silence was woven in to his work with the relationships of his life, and his, his work of healing and his work of building and teaching this group of people who he hoped would take forward his message. So the inner work that we do needs to be in harmony with the outer work of our lives. We need this outer work. We need to find good work, work that we believe in, work that allows us to serve others, work that is creative for us, not deadening, not mechanical, uh, life that give, a work that gives dignity to our life, whatever it may be. Um, and it will be different for different people. But so we need very much to find our work. What is the work we are called to do? I met somebody once who had had a near-death experience and he emerged from it with this awareness, well, with, without, he'd lost the fear of death, for one thing, but he also was a bit anxious because he said, I came, I know I was given my life back and I was sent back in order to find the work I had to do. And he said, I'm not sure what that work is. So he was thinking primarily in terms of external work. You know, what kind of job should he do? What kind of profession should he do? And that is, of course, important, because that will give us, you know, we, we can't, not everyone is meant to be a brain surgeon, not everybody is meant to be a, a street cleaner. But if you're, you know, if, if, if sweeping the streets is, is your work, then, then do it with pride and dignity and do it well. Um, so it, we have to find the particular work that allows us to use our talents and to in put our talents, you know, in invest them and see it as a work of meaning because it serves others. But perhaps what he hadn't uh, fully appreciated yet was that this work that he was meant to be looking for was also an inner work. And I don't think we can really separate the two. The inner work, finding oneself, the work of contemplation, the work of stillness, the work of silence, it takes up less time than uh, the time you may spend in the office or cleaning the streets, but uh, they are complementary. The outer work, the big question is, are th do you see the outer work as primary or secondary? It isn't that they're not both necessary, both important, but one is primary, the other is secondary. And of course, in our culture, the, the, the outer work is primary. That's how we identify ourselves, justify ourselves, see ourselves in terms of our outward work. 
But it's like the story of Martha and Mary. And Jesus says to Martha, Mary has chosen the better part. He's not saying that Martha isn't doing good work by whichever she was doing in the kitchen, but that being comes before doing. Contemplation is the, sp the source of good work, work that can be sustainable, work that is healthy, work that doesn't lead us into compulsiveness or burnout or ad addiction. And this is why, uh, in order to emphasize this, St. Benedict says, the, the goods of the monastery, the products of the monastery, should be sold at a little less than the market rate. Not sure how many monasteries would do that. <laughs> and they make uh, soap and uh, tonic wine and things. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, that's Benedict's advice. Uh, and the, po the point of it is, to just to, to remind you that this work is important, but it's secondary. And uh, in the same way, he, in the desert uh, tradition, they said, you know, the monks shouldn't haggle over prices. Because they, they would sell whatever they were making, mats or other things, or they would sell their labor. They would go out and work in the fields during harvest time. So they would sell themselves or their work products, um, but they wouldn't haggle too much over the prices. Probably. So, um, and if we get the balance right, if we see the primary value of the inner work, the outer work becomes a great deal less burdensome. And you will not be trapped into that compulsive overwork of the, uh, of the monk in that, in that story. And then you, you come to see what they called the, the achievement of working with Christ. And any work we do, the inner work or the outer work and the balance between the two, when it's healthy, it is understood, the meaning of it is that we are working with Christ in the world and in our own interior work. So let's take our time to do that inner work now. Again, just take a moment to Loosen up your shoulders, stretch a little, you can do that in the chair. Let's take that moment, a few moments, to bring the body back into the picture.
and the body and the mind to come into harmony. The body can anchor the mind in the present moment. Just take a few moments to be aware of your breath. Close your eyes lightly. Relax the muscles of your face, your forehead, your jaw, your shoulders. And then silently, in stillness, in our mind and heart, we begin the work of the mantra to say the word gently, faithfully, continuously returning to it, letting go of thoughts of the past or the future, anxieties or fantasies. <coughs> returning to the word simply, attentively, faithfully. <coughs> 